Today on EcoReport. Both carbon dioxide and methane are important greenhouse gases that further exacerbate the atmospheric warming. We speak with Dave Schurkauer of Denali National Park about the effects of climate change on the park. EcoReport is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. The Bloomington Plan Commission has begun their review of the city's draft 2040 comprehensive plan. In a preliminary overview late last month, planning services manager Scott Robinson said the comprehensive plan sets the vision for Bloomington's future. Our vision statement was adopted back in January of 2013. That set up the big picture of where we want to be in 2040. And this document is that first step in how we get there. It sets us on that journey. What it should do is help assist elected officials, uh, community members, staff, and others on how to make decisions. The plan's seven chapters cover the city's major objectives for land use, housing, transportation, the environment, community services, cultural identity, and downtown development. In a hearing last week, the plan commission discussed various proposed amendments to the comprehensive plan. Proposals ranged from encouraging green building practices to recycling to ride-sharing. Many of the proposals were tabled. Commission Chairman Joe Hoffman said many of the ideas were worthy goals but needed work. We're not opposed in theory. In fact, we kind of like some of these, but they're not ready for prime time. And partly that's because people had very little time to prepare. This is the reason why we're slowing things down. So we're saying take advantage of the month that you've got come back with a version and work with staff and, and make sure that you come up with an amendment that we can actually uh, feel more comfortable adopting. That's the way I would look at these, all, all of the tabling motions. Hoffman said the amendments that were approved Monday will be rolled into a new draft which will be available to the public for review. The plan commission will continue to review amendments and take input from the public in meetings on June 5th and 19th. The draft comprehensive plan and all amendments are available at the city's website, bloomington.in.gov cmp. In Indiana news, Governor Eric Holcomb signed a bill this week that is expected to take a long-term toll on Indiana's solar energy industry. Environmental groups opposed Senate Bill 309 because it reduces the financial incentives for households that generate their own solar power. The bill cuts the price at which customers can sell their excess power back to the grid. The measure was supported by utility companies who complained they were paying customers too much to buy that extra power. 
residents, faith leaders, local officials, and businesses had vigorously opposed this legislation. But in the end, the legislature and governor sided with the utility companies. In a statement, the executive the executive director of the Hoosier Environmental Council, Jesse Carbanda, says the move will make it more difficult for Indiana to attract solar energy jobs. Carbanda says, quote, by signing SB 309, Governor Holcomb has chosen to go against his number one legislative priority, which is for Indiana to be a magnet for jobs, unquote. Holcomb defends his decision in a statement noting that the price cut will only affect new solar panels installed after July 1, 2022. Holcomb states, quote, I understand the concerns some have expressed, but this legislation ensures that those who currently have interest in small solar operations will not be affected for decades, unquote. Currently, solar panel owners receive full credit for any extra energy that they sell back to utility companies. SB 309 will reduce credits over time to make the option uneconomically viable for families and businesses to go solar. The Sierra Club says they expect the new bill will effectively kill Indiana's rooftop solar market. While renewable energy in Indiana is actively opposed by the climate science denying state legislators, legislators and governor. In Scotland, wind turbines provided enough electricity to power most Scottish households in the month of March. March of 2017 wasn't as windy as it has been in some previous years, so the accomplishment of greater power generation is attributable to the increased amount of wind turbines that have been installed recently. In addition to supplying power to homes and businesses, wind power in Scotland supports thousands of jobs. Scotland's total electricity consumption for homes, businesses, and industry for March was largely satisfied by wind power. Wind power provided about 58% of the country's electricity needs for the month. Using wind turbines, Scotland occasionally generates more electricity than it actually needs. This past March, 17th and 19th, wind turbines provided an output equivalent of 102% as well as 130% of each day's demand, respectively. Another country has jumped in to get involved with wind energy, India. According to India's Ministry of New and Renewable Energy, the country added a record wind power capacity of 5,400 megawatts in 2016 and 17, vastly exceeding its initial target of 4,000 megawatts for the year. The previous best was 3,423 megawatts in 2015 and 16. Indiana, by contrast, had a total of 1,895 megawatts of wind power capacity in 2015. Thus, India installed far more capacity in one year than the total capacity built in Indiana thus far. India's total wind capacity is 33,000 megawatts, 10 times Indiana's total. Elsewhere in Northern Europe, oil is still a primary revenue source and investment strategy. During the first week of April, the Standing Rock Indigenous Women's Divestment Campaign, whose members observed or experienced human rights and indigenous rights violations in North Dakota because of the Dakota Access Pipeline, took action and spoke out about divestment in Switzerland and Norway.
In Zurich, the delegation met with the Credit Suisse and UBS banks and held a press conference, public event, and interviews with the media. They shared on-the-ground experiences as indigenous women living in communities directly affected by fossil fuel development and infrastructure. Frontline indigenous women are seeking financial divestment from Dakota Access and other fossil fuel developments, which threaten the lives, rights, and cultural survival of their nations and peoples. The previous week, the delegation visited Norway to meet with bank officials, some of the largest supporters and funders of the Dakota Access Pipeline and other fossil fuel projects in the U.S. and around the world are based in Norway and Switzerland. While Norway is often hailed for the high living conditions it affords its citizens, much of the wealth that it uses as funding is generated by high-return fossil fuel investments, which in turn fuel climate change denial. The trend is even more present here in the States, where new research shows that 180 climate-denying members of Congress, plus President Trump, who denounced global warming as a Chinese hoax, have received more than a combined $82 million in contributions from fossil fuel industries. Researchers from the Center for American Action Fund calculated that the Republican president, 142 representatives, and 38 senators who do not accept the overwhelming scientific consensus that human activity causes climate change, have received a total of over $82 million from coal, oil, and gas industries. That's more than 59% of the Republican House caucus and 73% of Republicans in the Senate that deny the scientific consensus that climate change is happening, human activity is the main cause, and that it is a very serious threat. No Democrats publicly deny the science behind climate change. According to the new report, the top three recipients, recipients were Arizona Senator John McCain, who maintains that greenhound gases are not pollution. Another recipient is Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell, who once said, quote, for everybody who thinks it's warming, I can find somebody who thinks it isn't, unquote. And ranked third is ten, uh, Texas Senator John Corwin, who says that humans have an impact on the environment, but doesn't think it's the responsibility of the government to do anything about it. In this report, Senator Todd Young is said to have received over $400,000 from the fossil fuel industries. However, the Indianapolis Star printed a story stating that Young received over $3 million in campaign contributions from the Koch brothers and over $11 million from Mitch McConnell's slush fund of untraceable dollars. According to the Star account, Young spent $24 million on his campaign, the vast majority of funds coming from out-of-state sources, outspending Evan Bayh by a two-to-one ratio. Trump himself received over $1 million in fossil fuel money. Fossil fuels and oil specifically are the primary ingredients in non-biodegradable plastic garbage that is clogging the Arctic Ocean at the northern tip of the planet. According to a report published on April 19th in Science Advances, currents carrying plastic debris and originating mostly in the North Atlantic are entering the Greenland and Barents Seas, parts of the remote chilly waters of the Arctic Ocean. An estimated 300 billion bits of plastic trash have accumulated in the water, sea ice, and sea floor.
In some parts of the Greenland and Barents Seas, the researchers found hundreds of thousands of pieces per square half mile. The researchers call the region a, quote, dead end for this plastic conveyor belt, unquote. The plastic junk from bottles, bags, toys, fishing nets, and much more is mostly in minute particles. Because climate change is causing the Arctic sea ice to melt, ships can navigate it more easily, so the plastic junk may spread even more widely in the future. There is a ray of hope, however. The polyethylene plastic bag you're used to bring your groceries home can languish for millennia in a landfill or in the Arctic Ocean. Well, the plastic bag isn't the ray of hope, but a worm that breaks down plastic bags is. Scientists have tried using bacteria and fungus to break down plastics, but a team of researchers in England and Spain have shown that a bug might be much better fit for the job. Federica Bertocchini, a biologist at the Institute of Biomedicine and Biotechnology in Spain, noticed some wax worms had managed to eat their way through the plastic bags they were being kept in. While other organisms can take weeks or months to break down even the smallest amount of plastic, the waxworm can get through more in a far shorter period of time. The researchers let 100 waxworms chow down on a plastic grocery bag, and after just 12 hours, they'd eaten about 4% of the bag. The results were published in the journal Current Biology. That may not sound like much, but that's a vast improvement over fungi, which weren't able to break down a noticeable amount of polyethylene after six months. Munching on plastic isn't that big of a change in diet for waxworms. Wax moths, their adult form, usually lay their eggs in beehives, and newly hatched larvae eat their way through the beeswax. Wax is a polymer, a sort of natural plastic, and has a chemical structure not dissimilar to polyethylene. Hopefully, the waxworm's special skills can help us do something about the billions of plastic bags thrown away every year. Another aspect of this phenomenon is that the waxworm may someday be called upon to satisfy the protein needs of humans. Insects are commonly eaten now in many countries. Adding the waxworm to our diet might just be natural progression. Those are some of the headlines for WFHB and EcoReport. I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. We love getting emails and messages from you. Contact us if you have any thoughts about stories we've aired or if you have future story ideas. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. In today's Eco Report feature, correspondent Norm Holy interviews. Dave Shirakauer from the Denali National Park in Alaska about the effects of climate change in the park. This is Norm Holy for WFHB, and today I'm interviewing Dave Shirakauer. He's at Denali, and he's going to talk about uh, the effects of climate change on the park. Uh, thanks, Dave, for running us the interview. Well, it's, it's great to be here. Thanks for engaging me on this important issue. And um, is Denali experiencing um, very much in the way of the effects of climate change? Denali is experiencing the effects of climate change. Um, as you may know, the further north you go, the magnitude of climate change is greater. And so we're, we are observing the effects of climate change here in the park. 
And um, what specifically, uh, for example, uh, what's happening to to the tree line or the snowmelt line? Yeah, there are there are several um, effects of climate change in the park that are quite obvious. Some are some effects are more subtle and. Um, one of the interesting effects has to do with the change in permafrost dynamics. So Denali National Park is 6 million acres, and the northern 2 million acres of the park is underlain by virtually continuous permafrost. Permafrost is ground that remains below freezing for at least two years in a row. Um, to have continuous permafrost, it ha the ground ha is generally frozen for decades, centuries, even millennia. So in our northern 2 million acres, there's a lot of permafrost. And we've been studying the permafrost dynamics pretty closely in conjunction with our um, partners from the University of Arizona. There's actually a permafrost observatory right outside the park. And so we've been um, slowly watching the permafrost thaw and and what that means is that the permafrost is retreating deeper into the ground and so the active layer of the soil or the portion of the soil profile that melts and freezes each year is getting deeper and this causes a lot of interesting phenomena um, one phenomena is that in the in this part of the park this third we have a lot of wetlands these are ponds and lakes, and many of them are controlled by permafrost. In other words, the frozen ground um, holds the water into these water bodies. And so when the permafrost thaws, at some point, those water bodies can drain. And if you fly over the northern part of the park, you'll see um, a lot of these wetlands, some of them look like they have for many, many years, but many of them have shrunk or even completely drained, and you can actually see the outlines of these former water bodies. Uh, so corollary to that is we, we do get some new wetlands as permafrost thaws, and it creates these depressions known as thermocarsts. They can fill with water and, and be ponds and um, also important habitat for waterfowl to breed. In particular, we have swans that use um, a fair amount of those wetlands for the, for breeding purposes. Overall, we're looking at a, a loss of permafrost-controlled wetlands over that landscape. Now, how how much would the land uh, sink? Uh, you know, is there a number that you can arrive at in terms of how much it would fall to allow the drainage out of these reservoirs? It can be pretty subtle. So, um, even if just a small portion of the permafrost thaw just a little bit that is surrounding one of these lakes that can cause it to drain. Um, so I don't have an exact number. Each situation is going to be a little bit different. But I can say that there is a particularly interesting feature in the park. It's a thermokarst where these ice wedges are decaying beneath the ground, and it's creating these fissures. And we, we see more and more of those, and we've been monitoring this particular thermokarst and this this network of fissures that's been forming as these permafrost ice wedges melt. And those um, fissures are now in, in some places 20 feet deep, whereas 
when we first started looking at this uh, in um, about 14 years ago, they were nowhere near that deep, and that network of fissures was nowhere near as extensive. So we're seeing these features uh, growing dramatically over time. One of the, the really most fascinating and interesting parts of the permafrost dynamics has to do with the carbon that's sequestered within permafrost. So we have a lot of plant production in the Arctic and subarctic during the summer. And when these plants senesce in the fall, they, uh, they freeze. And a lot of the carbon that is produced during the summer actually gets integrated into permafrost. I was out in the park a few years ago, and we were studying permafrost in this, in this northern section of the park, and we were taking cores of permafrost out of the ground with this drill-like tool. And you could actually see several feet down, maybe oh, like four or five feet, you could pull out these frozen soil cores and actually see plant material within them. And so that plant material had been frozen for, for decades to hundreds of years. And the carbon within those plants was sequestered, frozen, in the ground. And as the active layer increases with permafrost thaw, these formerly frozen plant material is now available for microbes to decay. And so the, the thaw is actually kind of a double whammy because it's thawing and it's allowing microbes to act on previously frozen organic material and more carbon is being released because of that. It's called a positive feedback. Carbon that gets released is just carbon dioxide, and some of it is methane, and that just depends on whether the conditions are oxygen-rich or oxygen-poor, where those microbes are working. I'm just curious. Either way, both carbon dioxide and methane are important greenhouse gases that further exacerbate the atmospheric warming. Yes, indeed. So can you see, like, bubbles in, in lakes of methane coming up? Uh, yeah, so that is a phenomenon that we do see in Alaska. I personally have not seen that. Most of the, uh, most of the permafrost landscape in the north allows for aerobic action, so we don't get the methane as much as we do carbon dioxide coming off of the tundra. Other parts of the state, um, the methane-producing scenario is much more common. EcoReport is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light and you can set your own schedule. For more more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. It's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of South Central Indiana. This is In Nature. The large blackbirds we call crows often congregate in massive flocks during the winter, sometimes referred to as a murder of crows. Theories about why they do this include food sharing, protection from predators, and the bird's own social structure. Crows have been congregating in this way forever, sometimes in groups of up to thousands. And as modern humans have modified the landscape, 
So in modern times, large flocks of crows are found around our landfills, industrial agricultural operations, and in cities. Some scientists theorize that crows flock in cities because they are drawn to the artificial lights urban areas provide, which offer protection from one of their most dangerous predators, owls. Others point out that the urban heat island effect causes slightly warmer winter temperatures in cities than rural areas. Additionally, urban areas are an excellent food source. Like many urban wildlife, crows are omnivores who are happy to clean up after messy humans. Crows are extremely smart and social birds. They are also very vocal and make a significant contribution to the ecosystem by feeding on grubs and insects that eat plants. Recent studies have demonstrated that a typical crow is as smart as a seven-year-old human being with the capacity to solve problems, use tools, and recognize human faces. You've been listening to In Nature. And now for our weekly events calendar. The Bloomington Community Orchard will host a class on Citrus Dreams on Saturday, May 6th from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Hilltop Gardens located on the IU campus at 2367 East 10th Street in Bloomington. Trying to grow a citrus tree in the north is almost impossible, but you can learn how to grow citrus trees in containers for your enjoyment with this class. Grab your binoculars and spotting scopes and join DNR's non-game biologists on a hike to view migratory, migratory shorebirds at the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area on Tuesday, May 9th from 1 to 4 p.m. for a migratory shorebird walk. Bring water, sunscreen, bug repellent, and expect to walk up to one mile. Pre-registration is required. Go to the State of Indiana DNR website to register. Goose Pond is located at 13540 West County Road 400 South in Linton, Indiana. There will be a free plant swap on Saturday, May 13th from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Bloomington Community Farmers Market located at the Showers Common at 401 North Morton Street in Bloomington. The Bloomington Organic Gardeners Association, BOGA, BOGA, is hosting the plant swap. Bring plants and seeds to share and or swap. Native plants, tree saplings, and seeds are encouraged, but all non-invasive plants are welcome. The Indiana Audubon Society is having the annual Big May Day Bird Count, BMDBC, on Saturday, May 13th. The objective of the BMDBC is to count the number of birds of each species occurring in a participating county area from midnight to midnight. The snapshot provides a valuable scientific record of the bird population in Indiana. If you would like to participate, contact Matt Kalowinski at M-A-T-T-K-A-L-W-A-S-I-N-K-I at yahoo.com. Enjoy a wild edible hike on Saturday, May 13th from 11 a.m. to noon at the RCA Community Park in Bloomington. Join instructor Josh Nicholson to discover safe and common wild edible plants. You will learn identification, harvesting, and preparation techniques, and also try a taste or two. Register by May 8th at bloomington.in.gov parks.
maintains and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Sarah Vaughn, Linda Green, Norm Holy, and Joe Crawford. The script was written by Aaron Comforti. I, Juliana Daly, compiled our events calendar. Megan Wade and Matt Griffin are our engineers. Our executive producer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the EcoReport. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. EcoReport is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the EcoReport staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.